The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. So welcome, everybody, to One on One with ANZ, our regular Clubhouse show, where we uh, discuss questions uh, submitted by uh, you wonderful members of the audience via Twitter. Uh, ahead of time, and then um, argue about them um, uh, with a, with an emphasis on the, on the arguing part. Um, we uh, got uh, we are having a uh, special actually episode today uh, based on a topic that we've been exploring at the firm and all of our um, online activities for the last week, which is uh, the future of work and the future of work uh, in the post COVID world. And so this entire uh, phenomenon around remote work and work from home and distributed companies and so forth. Uh, this really kind of played out under duress for the last, you know, 15 months uh, during the lockdowns, um, but now, you know, is going to extrapolate forward into the new post-COVID future um, in new and very interesting ways. And so we have a whole uh, a whole bunch of really, really sharp questions once again from the audience uh, that we're going to get into. But I'm going to introduce the topic um, by uh, reviewing quickly the results of a survey uh, that we recently did of our portfolio companies. And so this is a survey. We ran of our portfolio, a couple hundred companies. Um, we got a very high high response rate, so it's a it's a good representative survey of kind of a modern venture capital funded uh, tech startup portfolio across you know many many domains of activity. Um, it actually did not include our crypto startups, and so this particular survey, um, the numbers are if anything biased low uh, in terms of remote and distributed work because the crypto companies in our portfolio tend to be even more distributed. Um, so view, view these numbers as a lower bound, not an upper bound. Um, and, and, the, and the results are really striking. So let me go through quickly the, the oh, and then you can, you can see that the entire survey and its results is in a PDF that's on our website, uh, a16z.com. Uh, so please take a look at that. Uh, so I'm going to just hit the highlights from the survey. So uh, 25% of organizations um, of, of our portfolio companies are likely to go remote first. Um, and then 67% of, or, of organizations are likely to go hybrid. Um, and if you think about that, think about the combination. So 67 plus 25 equals almost all companies in our portfolio are going either hybrid or remote first. So very few companies are going back to uh, the way things were. Um, within those numbers, uh, within the 67% of organizations likely to go hybrid, uh, 38% of those companies, their definition of hybrid is um, one to two days a week in office. And so their definition of hybrid is people still have to live near the office, but won't have to come into the office every day. Um, so that's 38%. And th but then 28% of those likely to go hybrid are likely to require visits to the office only for offsites. And so that's the other definition of hybrid, um, which is basically you can live other places as long as you can physically make it to the offsites. And I think one of the really interesting tensions we're going to talk about today hopefully, is that uh, you know people are throwing around this sort of hybrid term a lot right now, but I think these are really two totally different uh, definitions of hybrid that, of course, you know matter a lot to employees because it really determines whether or not you can move. Um, uh, let's see, uh, continuing on, 89% um, of organizations will continue to or plan to hire remote employees. Um, this one is really striking to me because what you hear right now is a lot of companies claiming that first kind of hybrid work, so the kind of hybrid work where employees We'll still have to come into the office, but maybe only one or two or three days a week. But yet 89% of all companies in our portfolio are going to continue to or plan to hire remote employees. This is another form of tension that I think is kind of hanging in the air right now, which is how are you going to maintain a hybrid culture in which your existing company, uh, your existing employees are required to live near work, 
if you're also hiring a lot of remote employees? And won't that over time shift you to becoming actually a remote first company, uh, even if you didn't start there? So we'll, we'll probably talk about that a little bit today. Um, 86% of organizations will prefer a hybrid or remote first environment for future board meetings. Um, and I would view, you know, board, board meetings are, you know, some of the most important meetings the CEO does. And so I would view this as an extrapolation for important meetings generally, uh, which is 86% of companies are, are willing to do remote board meetings, which, you know, at least to me implies that, you know, 86% of, of organizations are also going to be doing other uh, important meetings uh, uh, remotely, which again is a, is a pretty hard nudge towards remote. Um, and then finally, you know, one of the big concerns about remote work is whether it will lead to a diminishment of creativity and innovation, in particular in, you know, cutting edge companies like in our portfolio. Um, here's a very interesting result. 63% of companies believe they can be as creative in their remote or hybrid environments. Um, and on top of that, another 10% believe they will be even more innovative. And so if you add those numbers together, 73% uh, of companies uh, believe they will be the same or more innovative in a hybrid or remote world uh, as they were in the previous world. And so that, again, is a very strong signal um, kind of in this, you know, in this remote-centric direction. Um, so like I said, you can, you can get the detailed survey results uh, and all of these numbers and all these topics uh, on our website and the post that we just made a few days ago. So please go to a16z.com if, you, if you'd like to download that and look for the PDF with all the survey results. Um, so let me start, and it's a question, maybe I'll start with Ben and then Stephen go to you. Um, you know, as, as, as longtime operating executives yourself, you know, both, both of you are longtime operating executives and of course, longtime coaches and mentors to lots of people who are now in, you know, senior operating jobs. And you talk to a lot of senior operating executives, um, starting with Ben, what's been the most surprising learning, um, that you have gathered over the last, you know, 15 months, um, about, you know, this whole concept of remote work and then sort of resulting from that. Uh, how companies, um, you know, will basically be run in the future. Well, I think the most surprising thing by far is just how well it's worked. Um, like I would have never predicted at the beginning of this that no companies would go back to their old operating model. I mean, that's that that's truly shocking um, that nobody is saying, okay, everybody come to work five days a week. Uh, you know, just given that... <laughs> Most of the companies in the portfolio, probably 85% or 90% of them were, you know, going to the office five days a week and now zero. So that's yeah. that's just, you know, I, I can't even express how shocking that is. And, you know, it's a little bit of a function of how well the tools work. But it's also, I think, um, you know, kind of a function of the fact that we as a society never re-examined the old uh, kind of business operating model, you know, as these new tools came online. Like we never kind of at a fundamental level, a few companies did, but by and large, we didn't. And uh, it turns out that, you know, Zoom and Slack and email and all these things work pretty well. Uh, and there are some real advantages to not having people in the office all the time. Stephen, uh, what's been the biggest surprise that uh, you've come across? Well, I, you know, I would actually echo what Ben said. I remember when it was very, very early in the pandemic, and one of my first pandemic lockdown Zooms you were on, and we were both trying to sort of outdo each other on how bad everything was going to be. And it was just this, no, it's going to be bad. No, it's going to be worse. Nothing's going to work. And one of the, the biggest learnings for me was I was actually surprised that the big companies sort of held it together as long as they did. 
I, I thought that there would be some unraveling, and that's really to Ben's point about how well all the tools worked. And at the same time, I, I, I even I thought that the startups were just going to be just power through this almost like without skipping a beat because they they just it's so much of a different set of challenges. And what they showed is just how much more innovative they were during the course of the pandemic. And so there was something about the the the, the tools and the lack of an office, in a sense, that caused, you know, the 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 people who thought they were going to be more creative to actually deliver. And and so I, I think going forward, that that rise in creativity and productivity at the scale, say less than 200 or 300 people, it was just unbelievable. And, and at the same time, the big companies, that's where all that coming back with the, well, we want to get back to our office, you know, three days, five days, ask for permission. I, you can sense that desire to sort of go back to quote normal. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so then a uh, second opening question. And, and again, Ben, let's start with you. Uh, what do you think is the biggest open question about how companies will be run to the topic of post-COVID management, um, you know, given everything we've learned? Well, there's a lot of open questions, too. I mean, e even though that, you know, it works surprisingly well for that kind of year and a half, um, there are still many. Um, and there, there's kind of the general ones that I think, you know, people talk about a lot, like, okay, how does career progression work? Um, you know, can you really get noticed uh, in this remote environment and that kind of thing? There's kind of really specific questions like how many days in the office are optimal, you know, by function, you know, is it two days? Is it three days? Is it one day, um, you know, a week or is it one day a month or, you know, how out of that work? Um, you know, another one that came up, uh, there's a funny thread on Hacker News where like, how do you know if your employees have multiple jobs? <laughs> and there was one guy in Hacker News who had, what do you have, 11 jobs? <laughs> you know, he'd certainly worked for all the fangs. Uh, and was yep. making quite a bit of money. Um, and, you know, how do you know that? But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, one thing that I have personally been struggling with is, uh, you know, there's this thing that happens in a company where, and, you know, there, there's this technique called management by walking around. And a lot of the purpose of management by walking around is, you know, people, you know, I don't care who they are or how well you run your organization, People from time to time are going to get frustrated with each other. They're going to get paranoid of each other. Um, they're going to worry about things. And one of the things you do by walking around is you just find out what those are and you diffuse them when they're early. You know, you kind of figure out, oh, that's in your way. Okay, I'll fix that. Or, you know, you think that person's out to get you. Let me kind of look into that and, and solve that. And the interesting thing is that, cannot be really easily escalated one like it on zoom uh you know in a meeting like that's never going to happen uh with other people around two you know if they have to email you and you're a manager they won't do that because then you could forward it to the person that you know they're frustrated with and that's a problem for them three they could pick up the phone but then that makes it seem like a more serious complaint than maybe they intend but if you're walking around you ask them how it's going then they can kind of tell you, or even maybe they can come by and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, like I'm a little frustrated with this, and then you can get through it. And so what I've noticed happening is these things don't get diffused anymore, and they get really hot. I mean, like super hot <laughs> before 
they get to me and, uh, you know, then I've got like some kind of crisis or a series of crises. So how does that work kind of long term over time with a big organization with a lot of people in it? Like, how do you know, how do you kind of keep small irritations, small irritations and not have them go nuclear is a is a real open question, I think, if you're not having people kind of in the office every day. So the obvious, I mean, the two obvious answers to that, um, you know, one would be, you know, have a some sort of, you know, text or WhatsApp or Slack dynamic going, and the other would be, you know, maybe regular phone calls, one-on-one phone calls. Do you think either of those uh, methods are okay? Yeah. So, so one like one-on-one phone calls, you know, like if you're a CEO, that doesn't really work, you know, like if you've got say 2000 people in your organization, you're not going to call everybody. So that, that, that's not really a thing. Um, and then, but you, you're not like, they can call you, but you know, calling you and dropping by and saying, Hey, (laughs) are, are two different levels of things. And then Slack, anything in writing, I think does not work for this kind of issue because people don't want to put it in writing. I don't care if it's Slack or, you know, signal or anything like they just don't want it in writing because writing can be pasted and sent to the kind of other party. Whereas there's always that, you know, nice deniability if you're just talking in person. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, like I've thought of those kinds of things. I don't think there's an easy, um, you know, for sure with your direct reports, you know, you can have regular phone conversations and all that kind of thing. And that, that certainly helps. Um, but even that, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you can think of one that got like very hot, very fast, um, you know, just in the firm where we do have a regular phone call, uh, you know, and all that kind of thing. So it's a new kind of problem. I, I don't think it's unsolvable or anything like that, but it's definitely, uh, a new challenge. Yep. And then, uh, Stephen, what would be your nomination for the biggest open question? The, the, for me, the biggest open question is is really what what how is, how do you operationalize scale? Like, how does doing things globally really work in in this model? Because you know today that model is sort of based on literally how did we fight World War II? Like, how many committee meetings do we have? How many you know Gantt charts do we make? How many rhythm yearly processes do we have? It was everything looks like the Edward Tufte uh, book, the cover of the, the Napoleon Waterloo March. Like it's just this very orchestrated thing, which is a lot of meetings and a lot of in person. And and those don't really lend themselves to it very well. And and so I think what does it look like to manage and what is strategy? You know, the everything about strategy is based on you know, this sort of, you know, D-Day like big giant thing. And and maybe things get smaller and more autonomous. Uh, the way, in a sense, the military has evolved and corporations didn't. And so I, I think that's the the biggest open open question for me is like what is what is what does it mean to to do strategy and execute on it at a at a scale where you're just not all able to know what's going on all at once. Right. Okay, good. Well, look, maybe we'll pick those topics up in a subsequent show and get more deeper in it. But we will now go to the really good audience questions that we got uh, this week. Um, And so we will start with a question from Anecdotal. 
um, which is there was some discussion with Ben on Boss Talk um, about the nature of company offsites or retreats post-pandemic, perhaps quarterly and more outcome-based, as some employees continue to work from home rather than annually and mostly fun and team building. Um, could you elaborate on the idea and, and specifically maybe the elaborate, elaborate on what you guys have said, like how much of what each of you guys just said are the challenges uh, could be addressed at offsites as, as part of the question? Yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the things that um, has become clear is that remote work is just more efficient than in-person work. Like, I, I don't think anybody would argue that, like Zoom, Slack, all that stuff. It's super efficient. Um but uh, there's kind of a couple things that it's probably not as good at. One is kind of kind of creativity, um, brainstorming, coming up with new ideas, uh, new ways of doing things. Um, and then the other is, you know, tough conflict resolution where, you know, two people are just at odds, uh, you know, and they could the, maybe the organization set them at odds or, you know, who knows what happened. And those things do work better in person. So, you know, when I think about offsites, I think, you know, it's important to not be efficient, i.e., you know, you want to give space and time to the things that are needed to get to a, you know, to basically to get to resolution or, or create a new solution. You, you want to have, you know, almost too much time. And, you know, Mark, you know, at, at the firm, we kind of take whatever agenda we have that might take up the day and we cut it by two thirds um, just so, you know, there's enough time and space for kind of people to brainstorm and come up with good ideas and have like weird serendipitous conversations and all these kinds of things that don't work really well with uh, or don't work as well with the remote tools um, just because people are always <laughs> trying to be efficient uh, remotely, um, you know, because that's what that facilitates. And so I think you have to use your offsite, you know, and, it, and I think it'll work better because look, one of the problems with the office is people are kind of in this halfway state, you know, or they were kind of pre pandemic where you're like, you're not really creative and then you're not really efficient. You're kind of interrupt driven and, you know, people are on email and meetings and all this kind of like, you know, wackadoo stuff. And so I think that, you know, kind of being very intentional, uh, not being online when you're in person and being, you know, having too much time for stuff, being inefficient uh, and getting to kind of really great ideas and solutions and, um, you know, getting rid of the dumb conflicts that are causing friction in the organization, all those kinds of things. So you want kind of a high frequency of you know some combination of in-person and off-sites, um, but you don't want to use that time to do what you can do at home. That that would be ridiculous. And by the way, a lot worse than doing it at home because you're really efficient when you're at home. Right. You know, I've told you I've told you before, um, and I, I always wondered if I'm just the only person who's like this, but I don't think I am. I've never really gotten the water cooler conversation thing um at the office um and maybe it's just because i'm too introverted or it just it takes me time to spin up a you know sort of an, an in-depth conversation with people but i've always thought the water cooler conversations are always just like super facile and light and substance free and it's like well and, and they've gotten harder over the years as sort of mass culture has splintered yeah. 
And so yep. it's like, hey, you know, did you, you know, how about that Tom Brady last night? Like, you know, it's at that point that I want to you know, start to start to slip my wrist to get out of the room. Um, and so it's like it, it. So I don't know. I've had these experiences where it's like you're in the office with somebody, you work with them for years, you see each other at the water cooler, and then like three years pass, and you realize you've never actually had a substantive conversation. Um, and so I just want, and maybe, the, like I said, maybe this is an introvert thing, but I, I just wonder, like, you know, kind of what you're saying, like the in-person setting and offsite, like over a meal, over a drink, like some soap time, like we're not under pressure, do, like we're not supposed to meet a meeting in between meetings, right? It's not in between emails um, and a chance to actually like get to know somebody, you know, uh, that, that I, by the way, that I may not see again for three months might actually end up with a much stronger relationship than somebody I see at the water cooler every day. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Because the problem with water cooler is... Um... It is so time limited. You feel like you got to go back to work or you're quote unquote wasting time, right? Like that, right. that always, that, that feeling is always there. And even the really great conversations, I, mean, I have many great conversations with Chris Dixon at the water cooler um, where he has some like really great new metaphor for, you know, how uh, crypto maps onto kind of some concept from like 1700 or something like that. Uh, but like, how long can that conversation go if we're like literally at the water cooler and you know one of us has like some meeting coming up or something like that, and so you you never get quite as deep on it as you could if you're like, okay, we brought you all here and we have nothing to do um, other than have yeah. these conversations. Uh, well, so, so so I think that's right. Yeah, you know, one thing that is just so interesting about the what you said is that that for years. Everybody has always come back from offsites and done feedback, and they always say the most valuable part of the offsite was the unscheduled time or the evening. And yet, every offsite, they try to jam more and more stuff into it and structure it more because there's always the boss who thinks, like, we didn't check off a bunch of stuff or we didn't reach agreement. And, and I really do think that, that, that one of the biggest things that will change is that offsites become the time that that the the teams integrate in a in a social way not in a, in a in a friend way but in a like i understand you now and how you decide things kind of way or i understand why your perspective on issues what your background is that makes those perspectives you know what it is and and i, I think that that's just a, it's going to upend the entire notion of of the goal of an offsite from like let's a agree on the operating plan for the year to let's agree that we will all work together for another year peacefully. Right. I totally you agree. Guys, I, I actually think agreeing for the operating plan on the year is better than on-site probably or online. Uh, and then, you know, the things that the deep conversations, the things that, you know, the, the other problem with, you know, online is the, the trust component. There's a lot of kind of things that help if you're face to face and, in really building trust with your colleagues um, and them understanding your true intentions, uh, which often get lost online. Um, and so having the time and space to do that. And, you know, when, when we say offsite at this point, I'm saying like, this is offsite, actual offsites where you go offsite with a group, but also, you know, when you have somebody go into the office, whether it's one or two days a week or whatever it is, um, that time is this time. It's, it's, it's this, it's gotta be time with each other, building trust, um, resolving conflicts, you know, creating new ideas, that kind of thing, things that, uh, aren't efficient. And then you, you can be super efficient and get all that, you know, 
all the correspondences, all the, you know, okay, let's go through this list of 400 things, metrics that we have to agree to and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, approvals, all that is, is better done kind of in virtual world. Right, right, right. Good, good. Let's go uh, dive in the next one. This one is uh, even grittier. This is, a, I think, maybe hopefully be a hot topic. So uh, Ashish Basu asks, if working from home, do you recommend renegotiating compensation packages downwards? And so let me let me kind of create the tension um, on this topic and then uh, we'll see what you guys think. So there's basically this massive question, right? This big question, which is, let's say you're, let's just say for the purpose of, 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 the, of the hypothetical, you're a San Francisco-based startup. All of your employees have historically been in San Francisco. Um, half of your employees now move from San Francisco because they can, right, in this in a remote first world. Half your employees now move to a much lower cost place to live. And that could, you know, make, could be someplace in the Midwest or the South or, you know, a smaller town or whatever. Um, and let's say the, the place they're moving to has a 40% lower cost of living, right, which is to say, just like you can afford, right, you can, as a, as a person in this other location, you can afford a house and, you know, all the things that kind of go along with having, having a good life. And, and, and they're just a lot cheaper in the other location. And, you know, almost every place is cheaper than San Francisco. So this, this is not a, not a, not a rare, rare idea. Um, so there's two ways that you could think about fairness and compensation uh, with that kind of change. Um, one way to be fair um, is to say, look, the people who are moving to this place that costs 40% less are effectively getting a giant raise. Right by making the move because they're moving to a place that's much cheaper. Uh, it's sort of as if they got a forty percent raise because, like, instead of living in a one-bedroom, you know, apartment, all of a sudden for the same amount of money they can be living in, you know, a three-bedroom house. Um, and so the fair thing to do is to reduce their compensation so that, which is, which you could call sort of adjust for cost of living, which is reduce their compensation so that so that basically there's fairness in lifestyle. For the two for for two employees who you know in, in each location who are doing the same work, um, the other way to think about fairness, right, is the opposite, which is same pay for same work, which is the person who just moved from you know say San Francisco to Sioux Falls or someplace where it's forty percent cheaper. That person is actually doing the exact same work, and so they the, the fair thing to do is to treat them the same and continue to pay them the same, um, you know, because it would be unfair to to pay them pay them less for the same work. Um, this, by the way, is a very hot topic uh, for a lot of big companies right now that both, you know, have employees moving um, and also are, are hiring people remotely. And so th this is a very pressing issue. And, and you're seeing companies in the Valley, um, at least, I think, coming on uh, coming out on both sides of this experiment or th this question. And, and, and to me, it seems unlikely that it seems unlikely that this will be an open question in two years. It seems likely to me that this will settle one place, one way or the other. And, I, and I'm just not sure which one. And so I'd, I'd be curious to see, guys, uh, which which of those do you think would be the right way to proceed? Yes. So I think there are kind of multiple um, kinds of things that you have to think about. One is uh, the just, you know, the market, as you've, you're kind of implying, which is like, you know, maybe you don't even have a choice. Maybe, you know, the market just dictates it. And I, and I do think, you know, like what we've seen um, in just kind of remote work in, say, India, is that the wages equalize pretty fast. Um, you know, when uh, people started uh, hiring engineers in Bangalore, they were about a fifth the cost of a U.S. engineer, and now they're very close to the same cost. So <laughs> I, I, I kind of think the market is going to force that issue. Um, but, you know, the, the other – you also have a legal consideration. I mean, you said equal pay for equal work. Like, that's a law. <laughs> uh, and so you have to be very careful about, 
you know, having two people in the same job with radically different compensation, um, even if it's based on geography, I think, because I think that can, you know, come back and get you in a different kind of fashion. But, you know, the most important thing, I think, in the short term, you know, as you kind of have probably more flexibility is what do you want to incentivize? <laughs> like, if you want people to work uh, in your location, then, you know, you shouldn't pay people the same to work in a place that's way cheaper to live because you're going to incent them to move out, out of there. If, on the other mm -hmm. hand, you know, you kind of want remote work or maybe you just want like five clusters and you say, look, I'll pay everybody who lives in whatever, Atlanta, Miami, Austin and San Francisco full wage and then anybody who doesn't live in one of those clusters you got to take a discount because you know I only want people working in clusters or maybe just outlaw people not working in one of your clustered areas but it really kind of comes down to what you want because you're going to get <laughs> right I mean th th this is the classic one where incentives matter a ton and so if you incentivize you know people to work uh, remotely because you're in different states, because you're paying them the same, even though their cost of living is half, then they're going to move. I mean, or a lot of a lot of people will move, not everybody. Right. Right. Yep. Stephen, yeah. What do you think? I, I'm I'm a market person. I just believe that you you can't outrun the market on on this topic. And I've tried twice. I used to have a pay differential for the Bay Area relative to Seattle. And then I had the same experience with India that, that Ben talked about. And both times, as fast as you could sort of explain the policy and the rationale behind it, the, the market <laughs> just caught up. And, yep. and, and so then you find yourself like, it, talk about incentives. You, you end up telling people, hire, hire, hire. And then they tell you our salary isn't competitive. And then you, but they, there's so much pressure to hire, you end up messing that up because you, you want to onboard someone and you, you sort of mess up the whole thing just because you're not willing to just pay the market. And, it, and in this environment, there's if even if only half the companies are fully distributed, that just means the demand for employees is fully distributed. So right. you, you, you can't really win. Like it's, you could try to race, but you're just gonna lose. So me meaning that the conclusion will be same, same pay for same work regardless of location? Yeah, it's just good. And, and it'll also work out. Like, it's not like in mass, everyone's going to move to North Dakota. Like, people still have, like, they still like the urban setting or they still want to live near their family or a whole bunch of other reasons. So it's, it's not going to cause everybody who is settled and likes where they are to move. And it's not going to cause the networks that exist that draw people to certain time zones even to not want to do that. Like, I think this will all sort of, work well let me push let me push on that though because you know i think what, what you're describing makes let's, let's take everything you said and let's take as a given that you're right uh and then and it basically it's, it starts with the dynamic you described which is not not everybody moves but then let's extrapolate forward a few years so so let's say the practice either because companies choose it or just the market forces it as you guys have been discussing let's say that the practice is same same pay same work uh or same work same pay um, and then, you know, Stephen, to your point, let's let's assume that companies start hiring any, you know, the companies that are hiring remote start hiring anywhere, which means remote workers have, you know, many choices of employers, um, you know, where, wherever they happen to be. Um, it, isn't the result of that a over time a massive incentive uh, for people to move to, by the way, to all kinds of places for all kinds of reasons? Like, doesn't that basically, if you extrapolate it forward, doesn't that just suggest that over the next like five years, 
or 10 years, you're going to have a massive geographic reshuffling of where employees choose to live, like, you know, way beyond even anything that we'd be contemplating today. It, it certainly, I, 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 think, yeah, ahead, I think, I, I think we will. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I think we're seeing it already. Um, and I, I think there's going to be a pretty big reconfiguration of, of, of where employees live for the, for the reasons that Steven said, um, there's going to be a big economic incentive and then that's going to lead to, you know, and, and it may, I, I still think there will be hubs, but that it won't be, I think it would be very surprising if, um, you know, Silicon Valley was as concentrated a, a tech hub as it's been in the past. That that would shock me. One way, to, one sort of way to guess this is you could the the suburbanization, you know, probably took about twenty five years to take mm -hmm. hold after World War II. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was talk about incentives, you know, let's build a whole city called Levittown and have everybody move to it. You know, like there were a lot of incentives that put that in place and let's build a railroad and let's build all this other stuff. And so I think I, I do think that there's going to be this mass distribution, but it's going to take much, much longer. It just takes a long time for all of that to happen. Like it might happen yeah. in half the time, but that's still, you know, 10 or 15 years. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But yeah. then, and then, and yeah, then, and then in turn, kind of this, 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 this goes back to the, the, you know, the survey results I was talking about up front. Like this shift over time, it feels like, well, even for companies that aren't starting out as like remote centric, um, it feels like this nudges more and more companies over time to be remote centric. Like even just this factor alone, is that right? I, I don't know how you're not. Like I, I think it. Like I think if you were to go to like a college campus, if you know, if there's still a college campus, and try to recruit <laughs> in two years, and right. say, come work for us. And like the first thing you do is put up a slide with your headquarters. Yeah. Like I think they look at you like, what is that? Like, why would you yeah. have that? And it, and I, so I think it, like you're not, you're no one's going to work for you at all. And say, hey, on your first day of work, you're going to sit in a room with 500 other people, and we're going to tell you about how to open a checking account in your healthcare plan. Like, why? Got it. Got it. Okay, and then let's go to a directly related question. So Jason Thane asks. Um, one of the worst ways to measure employee productivity, and I agree with this, has always been, quote, time spent at the office. Um, <laughs> in, a yeah. in a remote work environment, that flawed metric is finally gone. What will replace it? How do we come up with a more, with a more meaningful account with, sorry, how do we come up with more meaningful accountability, especially in knowledge work? And I, I just start by saying, like, I'm a pretty advanced radical on this topic. So if you, if you guys don't give sufficiently inflammatory responses, I'm, I'm going to provoke you. But uh, let's start uh, with, with, with what you think. Well, I think, you know, I think part of the problem with um, hours in the office, I mean, there's many problems with it, of course, but one of the problems is it's like literally a single metric for every job function, um, which is just insane. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think we want a metric that replaces it for every job function. You know, there should be something, you know, every job's got inputs and outputs. Um, they're different for sales, engineering, marketing, um, kind of any job you have. And I think that, look, I mean, it, it hopefully will get rid of like a very lazy idea that, you know, if you see somebody, <laughs> um, they can do it. And it shouldn't be, uh, you had that metric mark when you started your career, the K-locks, you know, how many, yes. uh -huh. <laughs> how many K-locks could an engineer like output, how many lines of thousands of lines of code, uh, you know, which is all, 
also just like a weird ass metric because it's not really measuring the thing. Um, yeah, for, for the thing is what get, you build, right? Yeah. yeah so for people who don't get the ref, for people who don't get the reference, and I've been, I'll let you continue, but the, for people who don't get the reference, so. Uh, IBM in the 1980s, uh, you know, which ran these with basically gigantic, effectively software factories. And, and Steve will remember the, the group I was in, in in the late 80s was 6,000 engineers working on their Unix implementation. And then that was in a building next door to the 6,000 people working on, on OS2. And in those <laughs> days, I mean, this is back when Windows, you guys probably had, what, 200 or 300 people on uh, Windows at the time. And so this was like a, a very, very large scale software operation. And the way that they decided to manage it. Um, was they, they decided, they, they ran all these studies, and they decided that each, each programmer uh, in an IBM division um, could be, should be responsible for uh, architecting, designing, writing, debugging, uh, documenting, and supporting um, 10 lines of software code per day. Um, and then the way that you sized projects was you, you would literally multiply the number of developers you had, let's say 6,000 times 10 lines of code per day, and that was the number of lines of code that the organization could produce. And then if you wanted to figure out how long a project would take, you would estimate its total amount of co co lines of code, and then you would divide, and that's how you would get it. And so the, the, the good news is we have advanced considerably, um, you know, thanks to, thanks, to, thanks to people like Stephen, and he's talked about this in his, in his prior book, uh, you know, in, in how to run, you know, these large-scale engineering projects. But, you know, ar arguably we haven't, you know, you know proceeded quite enough yet uh, to kind of get to the answer to this question. Sorry, Ben, I interrupted, but that's that's where that came from. Yeah, and I think, like, they're, you know, good if you take kind of a simple or, or relatively easy to understand case, which is sales, right? Um, like, really bad sales management is go, okay, did you hit your quota, <laughs> right? That's a very lagging indicator of uh, whether you're a good salesperson. But it's, like, it's not a measure you throw out. It's a It's still a measure. But you kind of have to back that up to, well, you know, like how many kind of phone calls did you make to generate leads? How many meetings did you get, first meetings? How many of those generated second meetings? You know, how many got to a POC? So there's all kinds of like quantitative things that you can do to get to a leading indication of how they're doing. But then there's also a set of qualitative measures like, you know, did you get surprised in an account? You know, or did you kind of diagnose and understand everybody in the account's perspective and were you able to predict what was going to happen next because you asked the hard questions? Or did you say, hey, this is going to advance to the next stage and then you got shocked because somebody uh, that you didn't know about sabotaged your deal, right? Like, so there's, the, you know, that's not a, a quantitative metric, but it's an important measure. And so you kind of really want to evaluate somebody on a, on a very full picture like that. And, um, you know, and if that, you know, keeps them in the office for an hour or 10 hours, it doesn't really matter. It, what matters is, are those things. And I think every job, you know, has things like that. And what you really want is a, you know, a set of managers in your company who's very well trained on really thinking through, okay, what are the inputs and what are the outputs, what are the leading indicators, what are the lagging indicators um, of good job performance. And, you know, it's not all going to be quantitative. Some of it is going to be qualitative, you know, for an engineer. Okay. It's great if, you know, from a quantitative standpoint, you hit your schedule and you got all the features in, but like, how were those features? <laughs> you know, like how was that architecture? Could somebody ever add another feature to it? All those things matter just as much as the quantitative measure. 
And so you really need smart managers who don't take shortcuts. And the ultimate shortcut is, oh, like Jerry was here till 10 o'clock at night, you know, maybe because Jerry's a sorry ass programmer and it took him that long <laughs> to do something simple. And so, you, you know, this is kind of all a way of saying like better management. You're going to have to be better at management um, because these half measures, but look, you shouldn't have been doing that anyway. So <laughs> yeah, hopefully right. this doesn't change things. Well, that's, that's sort of the key. I mean, ever since, you know, Frederick Taylor has showed up with a stopwatch to measure productivity, you know, bad managers have been using whatever tool they have improperly. And they're, because the managers are going to be so upended with, you know, whatever happens in the next few years, there are going to be bad managers who just, you know, take Salesforce.com or take Slack or take anything. I mean, like, geez, Word, you know, counts the number of hours it took to write a memo. Excel has, like, how long have you spent <laughs> on the spreadsheet? And, and, you know, in, it turns out in Germany, those features became illegal because they were like improperly measuring union workers, you know, and, and, and I think that- <laughs> Which is actually one of the, 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 you know, of all the kind of things that unions have pushed, that's one of the better ideas. No, exactly. And, and so I, I do think that, that what you said is just so important, which is that this is not going to be the- the time for bad management to rise up and say, finally, we can now just sit back and, you know, do a query to find out, you know, who to give bonuses to. And it's going it, to, it's just going to evolve in a, in a little bit different way, how you find out those things, how you communicate them, but they're, they're not more or less important. They're, they're still exactly what you have to do to have a healthy organization that, that works. So let me let me be more inflammatory and see if you guys think I'm over the deep end on this. So there was an anarchist, uh, famous anarchist writer, actually the creator of the original creator of I think the Occupy Wall Street movement, named David Graeber, who wrote a book about debt that a lot of people have read. Um, and he had this thesis, and I don't agree with I don't agree with this conclusion, but I agree with the setup. I had this thesis. He wrote this famous essay called "Bullshit Jobs," um, and the the thesis of it was basically if you look at a lot of the work that takes place in office environments and it's, you know, and you just imagine all the jobs, you, you, everybody can close their eyes and imagine all these jobs. Uh, he said, it's, it's as if basically, the, <laughs> it's as if basically the capitalist system is intentionally creating completely fake jobs, you know, purely for the purpose of keeping people occupied uh, for basically forestalling social revolution, but just these just terrible kind of nonsense jobs, <laughs> involve, you know, shuffling paper, sending emails or whatever, you know, that don't directly result in production. They don't directly result in servicing customers. It's just, it's just like it's all the, quote, other stuff. Um, and, and, and he, he was an anarchist, and so he thought this – yeah, I think, I think he was serious that he thought this was, like, intentionally happening. Um, you know, my version of that is that's not intentionally happening, but it is partially true. And the reason I think it's partially true, um, uh, something I first learned, actually, all the way back in it's like 1994, 1995. Ben, you remember one of our very first customers at Netscape was a – uh, I won't name them, but they were a very large online company. Or they were a very large magazine. They were a magazine company. Yes, with with wonderful articles. Yes, yes. And a, 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 it was a magazine company based in Chicago that was known for its articles and other features. Um, and um, they were one of our first customers at Netscape. And it was so novel to have a magazine you know, company that was going to be publishing on the Internet that I went to visit uh, the, the CEO uh, at that time in Chicago. Um, and, and I basically, and she, she was talking about like how well, you know, basically this online publishing was go, thing was going early on. Basically people really liked reading this magazine online. And I was like, oh, you know, I, you know, what, what, you know, what's, what's the, um, you know, what's, what's the usage, like, how does the, the usage must peak at like, you know, after dinner and, and, uh, and on weekends, I, you know, I just kind of logically assumed because of course I, you know, people are at work all day. And she said, oh no, 
Not at all. She said almost all of the reading consumption browsing is happening Monday through Friday during the workday. Um, and I was like, oh, ah, <laughs> if you put the internet on people's desks at work, you find out who's actually working, right? And so, and, and then basically, and then Ben will also recall later on, we invested in, in, in BuzzFeed and, and, and Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, had encapsulated this into a theory. He actually sort of built BuzzFeed on, he called it the at work network, which was basically the same observation that basically a lot of office workers actually just like spend an enormous amount of time every day on the internet. Well, and this came up also in the Jeffrey Epstein, uh, uh, when, he when, he when, he when he died in the, uh, in the, in the prison, it, it turned out that the guards Instead of like checking on his cell every half hour like they were supposed to, they were browsing the internet and like doing online shopping instead. And so, basically, it's like if you truly, um, if you basically did just like a complete metric. And I, I don't know if anybody, I, I often wonder if people are just scared to see the results of this and they just don't do it for that reason. But if you looked in a typical office environment of how, you know how many hours a day the typical knowledge worker was just surfing the internet instead of working, you know, it, three hours a day, four hours a day, five hours a day, six hours a day, like. Have we all been laboring over the last you know, 20 years under this fake idea of how much work actually gets done in the office? Um, and is, is this whole work from home thing either going to, you know, I guess on the one hand, you could say it's going to make this problem much worse because you're going to have even less oversight than you had before. Or you could say this is a chance to actually go back and actually try to fix this. Anyway, you guys think I pushed this too far or do you think there's something to that? No, well, I, I think it's. Um, I think the motivation is not to withhold a socialist revolution so much as um, – <laughs> I, I do think, look, sometimes, you know, your brain isn't, you know, some, from the worker's standpoint, like sometimes, you know, you're just exhausted and, um, you know, do it, you can't do more productive work. You need a break or whatever. It's like a coffee break. Um, and then from, I think, the uh, kind of company's perspective, you know, managers do want to have more people working for them and confrontations over like output are difficult. And then as, you know, kind of Stephen mentioned, like people aren't that great at um, kind of measuring and communicating performance to employees. And so all those th things kind of just lead to kind of whatever inefficiencies, <laughs> um, people not necessarily doing the work. I do think actually you know, in a way, uh, working from home, I, I don't think it exacerbates that. Uh, I, I do think it does open up the possibility that you could do another job uh, or two or three. Um, and so, you know, it just, it does heighten the need, um, to, you know, to get better at performance management and, uh, and kind of really understanding, you know, what your employees are doing. Um, but I don't necessarily think it makes that problem worse because uh, I agree with you. It's, it's, a it's quite, quite a thing already. already. One, one theory for how that this might play out, you know, the, the, the giant companies that have all of these sort of lame jobs, do nothing jobs or whatever, they didn't just add them, you know, willy nilly. They, they went through, you know, this 25, 30 year period of adding them as the need arose and there was no reason to ever reconsider it. And then they get so large that then they have to go through and do, you know, force reductions, whatever. And they, they don't ever do that by looking at who did what or anything. They have a whole other system. What's going to happen. I think they're just going to keep going, but the companies that are relatively new now that are sort of native in this remote 
this remote distributed kind of work, they will grow up differently. And a whole bunch of these jobs, they just won't get added. You know, like if you, you think about, you know, administration and how companies have allocated sources for just administrative assistance or how they've handled receptioning, reception at buildings or all of these things, they're just going to revisit them. And they might have a different set of problems, but they just won't get added like by just thinking about it, like the minute that you opened a building, like, in fact, my history of this is the minute that Microsoft acquired a company, it just became 50% more expensive to operate because there was just all <laughs> this stuff that we did. Like we just showed up like literally, oh, well, we need to go and reinforce your doors and we need to go and add people here and patrols here and you need this many people for that many people and all this stuff. And, yeah, yeah. and so the, the new companies that are sort of, native it, it growing up this way will just they will just they they might have a whole different set of issues but they're not going to just go down the path that every company that exists today went down yep yep well let me recommend one other book for people so i think yeah i think david graber turned uh, bullshit jobs into a uh, into a book but there's, there's there's another novel people might enjoy they consider this called company uh by an author named max berry and I, I won't spoil it. It's a little. It's it's like a. It's a. It's a. It's an office-based thriller, um, if you can believe it. Um, and it's based on his time at a very large Silicon Valley <laughs> company, and it gets deep in this issue of is any actual work uh, taking place. So, um, I think this will be a very fun topic uh, to watch over the next couple of years. All right, let's keep going. We're in the home stretch. Um, uh, Kim Taylor asks, um, would love to hear more about quote pandemic retention uh, that Ben mentioned earlier. Um, and in particular, um, you know, Ben, you may have seen there's been uh, some more recent both data and some new surveys uh, basically showing that there might be a significantly higher level of job churn and job turnover yeah. um, from employees, uh, you know, employees shifting employers and, and you know, potentially also companies reorganizing uh, in the months ahead than, than even we, we you know, than even we, you know, than we have seen so far. So um, uh, how do you think uh, pandemic retention is going to play out and how do you think uh, CEOs should think about that for like the next year? Yeah. So, you know. With surveys, it's always a little tricky because um, people say things in the survey that they might not actually do. Uh, but if you're to believe the survey, then there's going to be a lot of turnover, a lot of turnover coming up. Um, I think there's a, you know, definitely reason to believe that there's heightened turnover between people reevaluating um, their lives, uh, which yep. happened a lot during the pandemic, and what they really want to do with their time on Earth. Um, to burnout. But, you know, one of the bigger things that I think is going on, um, and it's funny because all my best CEOs kind of are, really want to get back to the office at least somewhat, and none of them can quite articulate it. But I think if I was to articulate it, I, what I'd say is this, you know, as, as founder or CEO, you kind of have a purpose of work that's very clear. You know, you're building the company. It's your mission. You're trying to solve some problem that you care about whatever. Um, but for the rank and file workers, there's a purpose that's not quite that in the same way. It's kind of this more abstract thing of, um, you know, you want to do something larger than yourself. You want to make a contribute, uh, you know, kind of contribution that benefits those around you, um, you know, where you're kind of like, they want you there, you know, you're helping them and they're helping you. And that feeling is kind of what gives your work life meaning. Um, mm -hmm. And that meaning really got diluted a lot 
with this remote work and with the pandemic in that you didn't get, you know, the smile back, the accolades, the thank yous, those things, um, you know, just didn't happen in the same way that you're used to. And, and so there's a real, like, I think a lot of people are carrying a kind of burnout slash emptiness um, mm-hmm. over, you know, not really feeling that their contribution matters. And uh, I, I think that's going to just cause, like, I think the reaction to it is a lot of people are going to just change jobs and see if they can get that feeling back. Um, but but I, I, I definitely think that's very, very real. I worry about it a lot, you know, both for our companies and, you know, for our own firm. Um, because, you know, more than the money, you know, like that is so much of what work is about. And, uh, and it definitely... <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's definitely got lessened. Uh, so, so that, that, that would be my best thoughts on it. Yeah. One of the things you see, one of the data points is if you, um, I've been friends of mine who are looking at buying, uh, you know, houses, um, in, um, you know, the, the kinds of places you might expect that people might want to move to, um, apparently the housing markets are just on absolute fire. Like it's just like, you know, just, it just like local, local realtors are apparently just like completely shocked. At the level of activity yeah. now, of course, that's anecdotal, but like, and you know, there's only so many of those places maybe, but like, it does feel like there's a lot of change, you know, possibly bubbling away under the surface. Yes. You know, but, but between yeah. what you just said and then the, the geographic topics. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, I think that's definitely true. I mean, you know, and then the, there's, um, you know, and then in tech, there's also like people who just said, okay, I'm rich enough. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm out. So there, yeah. there's that too. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Let's uh, keep keep on going. Um, so, uh, oh, let's yeah, let's go direct. Okay, let's close out. We got about uh, six minutes left. So let's close on two questions. So, um, very futuristic question. Uh, so, Magesh Ahiro, sorry for mispronouncing. Um, could you and Ben discuss the decentralization of crypto startups? Uh, for example, if you build a social networking app on a decentralized platform like Ethereum. Then how would the company function? And so Ben, you were you've been very involved in our crypto efforts and working with a lot of these uh, companies or projects. Um, and you know we we saw crypto startups being a, a lot more decentralized even before COVID. Um, and so maybe you could give us a rundown of like what we're seeing in crypto land right now in terms of how we think uh, those companies and projects will run in the future. Yeah, you know, um, and and different kind of crypto companies run in different ways. Uh, so there's things that are. Um, where almost everybody in the company is an engineer or in the protocol, uh, so to speak. Sometimes they're not really companies, so to, you know. Um, and if and if it if it's all engineers and it's a kind of a, you know, an older protocol or it's all engineers and it's a kind of smart contract that kind of took off um, without having to build out, you know, kind of other functions like you know, marketing or community management or all that kind of thing, then those, those ones do tend to be pretty remote, um, in nature. Uh, you know, um, our weave comes to mind as, as a company that runs kind of pretty distributed. Um, but other companies that, you know, have more of a kind of go to market function and so forth also run centralized in crypto land. So, I don't think, you know, the more single function you are, the more likely you are to be fully distributed. Um, I think when you're multifunction, then you at least have some 
often there is some centralized workforce. And then also it depends on the kind of natures of the founders, you know, the, the ones that are a little more extroverted um, like to be together in the office and then the ones that don't, don't. So I, I don't know that it's that different than um, kind of other tech companies other than there's a lot more single function crypto companies. Right. Right. Uh, Stephen, any, any views, any views on this? Um, I think, I think Ben said it all. I'll just, I'll leave it at, I'll leave it at that. Maybe you could squeeze one more question in that way. Great. All right. We're in the home front. Okay. Oh, here's, okay. We we'll save the best for last. Uh, David Boxenhorn asks, is this, is it the beginning of the end for Silicon Valley, given everything that we have just um, discussed? So gentlemen, open floor. And, and let's I kind of, specifically yeah. Silicon Valley, the region, so Silicon Valley, the geography, the geography. Yeah. The geography. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think that I mean I hope so. Uh, in that, um, you that know, I are hope those so words kind of, are those words that you thought you would be saying if, uh, a year and a half ago? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Because you know, like one is you know we have a lot of firm advantages of it being a geography. But I think that um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz aside, it's just going to be so much better for the world if Silicon Valley actually exists in the cloud. And there's um. <laughs> I'm going to try not to get into trouble on this, but there, there's this kind of social justice thing that people say, which is talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And that's not quite true uh, in the sense that, um, you know, talent isn't completely evenly distributed, uh, you know, depending what level of granularity you look at it and that like basketball talent was distributed much more to LeBron James than to me. Um, and like that just kind of, is true for all kinds of different talents. But one thing that is has been true is that opportunity has definitely not been evenly geographically distributed in tech. In that, you know, if you're a great engineer um, in Bangladesh, you know, your opportunity if you stay there versus if you move is quite different. And uh, and you know, if that changed and Everybody who's got great tech talent um, would have an equal opportunity to um, do great things. I mean, I can't even imagine of how much progress we'd make, um, how fast. So I, I really do hope that's how it goes. I really hope that you know everybody kind of can create a company from anywhere and um, work from anywhere. You know, if that occurs, I will, we'll just tap into. Yes, you know, such a bigger global resource. Mm-hmm. Stephen, your view, and then I'll close out. Uh, yeah, I think I I do think that the the, it, the days are numbered. It's going to take a very long time. Like it, this is a 25, 35 year kind of thing. The thing that I think about is sort of the flip side of what Ben said in terms of opportunity everywhere. I think that this also is this huge opportunity for all the companies of the world to up-level their software ability. So if you, you think about all the companies that, that have to build software now, and they always say they can't hire people. So if they can figure out how to hire the people wherever the people are, then all of these products that we touch that we think of as having crappy software, that maybe they could have better software if they could just figure out how to hire the talented people that exist elsewhere and, and up-level that skill because I, I think that there are going to still be advantages for all of the, you know, it's not, this is not going to lay waste to every single company, 
but there's an opportunity for every company to get much, much better at the software that it needs. And the, the distribution of people is, will enable that to happen. And so I think there, that the opportunity it creates is not just for all the cities of the world, but for all the companies of the world. Yeah, so I'll, I'll close and I'll try to <laughs> close that somewhat more inflammatory note. Um, so, you know, Silicon Valley, the region, I mean, look, I'm an import and Silicon Valley has been great to me. So, I, you know, there's there's a lot to like. I, I will say, like, it is a network effect, right? And so it, it is this, you know, the, this, I've always described the phenomenon of Silicon Valley as a geography is, you know, it's the place that on the margin, the next great, you know, programmer, technologist is is likely to go. And because of that, it's, it's on the margin. It's the place where kind of everybody else who wants to participate in new technology is going to go. And so it's this incredibly powerful uh, positive feedback loop. But the existence of this positive feedback loop that's been running, you know, and sort of, you know, essentially for coming on 100 years, um, it's been so strong. It's a, it's, it's a network effect. Um, and it's been so strong of a network effect that it, it, has, it, has, it has bred the mentality uh, of a monopoly. Um, and in particular, the, the leadership class in Silicon Valley, by which I mean, you know, the, the politicians, um, the political leaders, um, you know, at the, at the city level, at the regional level, and, and also at the California state level, um, you know, they've developed a mentality of a monopoly. Uh, and as Ben always says, the motto of every monopoly is the same, right? It's, it's we don't care because we don't have to. Um, and so you just have this like really awe-inspiring like level of just horrific governance um, that's played out over the over the last you know especially the last couple of decades. And I mean this this isn't even a political statement; it's just like an observation around just like housing policy. It's just a complete catastrophe. You know, it's just like you know cost of living is is just out of control. Transit is a disaster. Um, you know, the commutes are just unconscionable. The you know we haven't even been able to electrify our, our own train system. Um, like it's just, and then you've got, you know, you've got the fires that just, you know, rage out of control. You've got the power outages, you've got, you know, the skyrocketing crime, um, and, you know, urban squalor in San Francisco, you've just got all of these markers of, of, of basically collapse, uh, you know, physical and, and, and geographic collapse happening. And, and yet what's happening, right. Is that the tax receipts are through the roof. Right. And so basically the, the, and the politicians have, have been doing this very overtly. They've been saying, look, obviously this is going great. Like, obviously our policies are fantastic. Because just look at the tax receipts, look at the budget surplus, it's all going amazingly well. And of course, I, you know, I think the logical flaw in that is that, you know, tax receipts in Silicon Valley this year are based on exits this year, right? Companies that go public and get sold, right? Which is when, which is when all the tax revenue shows up. But of course, exits this year are based on companies that started five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago, right? And so t tax receipts this year in Silicon Valley are a backward-looking phenomenon, not a forward-looking phenomenon. Um, and like, I don't think the valley unwinds in a heartbeat, but like if a significant level of critical mass of both employment and overtime company formation moves outside of California, uh, you have this potential for just a massive collapse of tax revenue starting five or 10 years from now. Um, and, and maybe that's too far out for the politicians to care because they figure that'll be somebody else's problem at that point. Um, but, you know, the thing about network effects is like they're great until they're not. And when the unwind happens, it can really torture you, right, as, as lots of Internet companies have found over time. So. So I would, just, I would encourage if there are any politicians listening or anybody who knows politicians listening, um, encourage them to think hard uh, about the difference between backward-looking metrics and forward-looking metrics, because I think that, that's really missing from the, the policy discussion these days. Jens, would you uh, agree with that, or should we, uh, should we uh, disagree with that if you'd like, or we'll close an agreement? I agree with that. I mean, I think that uh, <laughs> the, you're right. The, the, the problem is when you get on the wrong side of a network effect, there's really nothing you can do. It's it's just too late. Um, right. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, it's one of those problems where it's not at all a problem and then it's existential. Uh, yep. And I, I do worry about that a lot for California, particularly San Francisco.
David, closing thoughts? Yeah, for, I mean, for sure. Like the, the metaphor or the analogy works super well and politicians should at least have a look at that. <laughs> should. should. <laughs> they won't, they won't, they won't, but they should. Um, okay, gentlemen, thank you. Very good discussion. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who submitted questions. And uh, we will uh, see you uh, back here soon on the Clubhouse. Yes, thank you, everybody. Thank you guys very much. Okay, good night, everybody.